Välkommen till dagens episode av podcasten Framtidens näringsliv som är er ett samarbete mellan Abelia och Juen Global Compact Norge. DNV released its Energy Transition Outlook 2021-1 on September the 1st. The report forecasts future temperature pathways with realistic policy interventions, and the conclusion is ominous. We will have 2.3 degrees of warming in 2100. This, in that case, will be a breach of the Paris Agreement, in which world leaders promised to limit global warming to 2 degrees. Remy Eriksson, the CEO and president of DNV has said that we need a revolution to limit warning to two degrees. Welcome to our podcast, Remy. Thank you. DNV has just launched an updated version of its yearly energy transition outlook, which looks at how the world energy system changes through to 2050. Please, Remy, could you tell us a bit more about why DNV develops these forecasts and why we need them? Well, thank you uh, for this. Uh, first, I would like to say that the report is is an energy systems report and not a climate report. So I'll get back to that a bit later. But I think that's an important uh, emphasis here that uh, it's a technology report uh, mm-hmm. and not a climate report. So the transition outlook is prepared each year by the NVS across disciplinary exercise between our corporate research unit and uh, two of our business areas, energy systems and maritime. And this means more than 8,000 people are working within these uh, two important areas. In making this uh, forecast, we then draw on the experts uh, from this corporate research unit and and these two business areas, and they are located around the world. Uh, They work for leading energy companies, and they also work for energy transporters um, to test, assess, verify, and classify the... um, energy infrastructure being installed now uh, that will be delivering the world's energy system in, in decades to come. So um, the ETO gives us uh, gives the independent view uh, of the most likely trajectory. We produce it because uh, we feel it's of strategic importance to have uh, an informed um, basis for making decisions on how we want to develop our own company. And we see an increasing need from our customers to guide them and, and to, to have good discussions on, on, on what they should do to prepare for, for this massive transition and how to grab the opportunities that comes from this, uh, I would say, major transformation that the world is, is looking into. And for this year, we are focusing on uh, how COVID-19 impacted the transition and also the importance to tackle the hard to abate sectors where hydrogen is a very important energy carrier. But before we dive further into to different uh, opportunities and uh, industries, um, could you explain us a bit more how, because you, your projection is 2.3 degrees at the turn of the century, right? Um, which is, of course, as you, you said, uh, you know, in breach of the, the Paris Agreement, but could you uh, how do you get to that number? Because there are different kinds of numbers uh, running around. And you said this is an energy report, not necessarily a climate report, right? Correct. 
So, so just let me say that this is the fifth outlook. Uh, and in our first outlook in 2017, we predicted that by 2050, the world energy system would be split 50% fossil and 50% non-fossil. And this year, four years from making that prediction, we are making the same prediction. Uh, so this means that basically the transition is fast, moving from 80-20 today to 50-50 in just uh, the space of one generation. I would say that it's pretty fast, but it still means 50% fossil fuels by 2050. Uh, and that means that we are emitting CO2 to the atmosphere and uh, that we are then basing, uh, you know, using other uh, models to predict what that CO2 emissions will mean in increased temperature by 2100. So, so this is uh, kind of the, the background from uh, for, for this 2.3 degree Celsius increase by the end of the century. And um, but you're saying that uh, even with 100% electrification, we will not need. I mean, because we have some uh, industries like aviation where it's not likely that we will get 100% electrification, right? Um, That's true. So. The finding in our report is that uh, we are getting more and more equipment and devices electrified, so using electricity. Uh, but there are certain parts, uh, and, and that electricity is becoming green, greener over the time. So that's the good part of uh, this, uh, this outlook. The challenging part is that not everything can be electrified, uh, and that's uh, where we have... Um, uh, high heat processes in industry. We have uh, heavy trucking. We have uh, um, we have aviation, and we have also have shipping that not easily can go directly to batteries and electrification. So here we have to use other uh, fuels to 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 tackle that part of the the emission picture. Remy, as you as you stated yourself, um, two point three degrees is quite a gloomy scenario for the planet we see already the consequences at, at today's level and from your perspective uh, and perhaps perhaps uh, despite the somehow somehow pessimistic conclusion are there any silver linings or any, any uh, small bits of good news as well in your report what would you say say about that well, the, the short uh, answer uh, to your question is yes, there are silver linings. And, and, but before I answer that, let me just also emphasize that our outlook is not a scenario. It's a most likely forecast, meaning mm. how competitive will the different technologies become in the future when learnings are built in and, and costs are coming down. And here we see you know, great examples in the past that you know, solar, Wind and battery technologies has got incentives and, and stimulus, uh, yeah, for more, maybe more than twenty years, and and that we now see the impact of, and that cost learning we will also see for new technologies when when new technologies are are put into applications. So the the most encouraging aspect of the energy transition is the electricity is is growing as I mentioned earlier, and it's greening very rapidly. The demand for electricity is going to double from about 19% today to 40% over 10 decades. 
So this new electricity demand will amount to more than the entire present electricity production globally today. So, and there are two kind of um, users here that we see growing. The two biggest are electrification of road transport. And then the second uh, part is electrolyzers producing green hydrogen with almost a quarter of the new demand each year. And, um, and the 80% of that electricity will be produced by renewable sources. So uh, we see that solar PV and wind will together supply nearly 70% of the power by 2050, meaning the electricity. Hydropower won't grow much and the nuclear will remain uh, almost flat at 5% of the power mix. Coal, and I think that's the good news, coal virtually exits the power mix with its share reduced to about a tenth of today's level. Gas uh, has better staying power, reducing just 22% with respect to its contribution to the power generation. So I would say that this is the positive side of the transition. The space of just one generation, we will see this massive change, increasing electricity and the electricity will be greening. But it is, even with 100% electricity, it will not bring us there. And that's because the transition, as I like to look at it, is evolving as a duality. On the one side, we have the greening of electricity. And on the other side, we have a vast sector that will remain reliant on fossil fuels. And that's where I think the world needs to really push hard so that we can have the same development in, in that part of the transformation as we have seen for solar, PV and, and wind over the past 20 years. Uh, I mean, I'm sure you don't want to go too deep into the Norwegian political debate, but I still have to ask the que a question when we are, you know, we are all sitting in Norway. Um, and, and this week we saw both uh, the, the, a new proposed tax regime from uh, from, from the government on, on petroleum, um, as well as a new report, another report coming out that, that said basically that um, uh, if Norway stop their production of oil and gas, that will contribute to a, uh, you know, a net increase in emissions because it's sort of a, a greener or not greener or less <laughs> less grey oil production. But then, of course, also the the emissions from the production itself is it's lower, much lower than the emission from the usage of of fossil. Uh, energy, right? So, so what's your take on this? Uh, what, what's the big picture? Uh... Well, let, let me address the, the first uh, on the tax regime, which I guess you are, are alluding to there, and then the, the report uh, from Rista, I guess that's where uh, the report you're referring to? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. 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 First, let me say that we believe that the climate policy must be based on facts and high-quality research, so that policies can be optimized, so it can be directed towards where we have the best effect with, when it comes to CO2 emission reductions. Uh, and I believe the new proposed tax regime targets exploration and investment activities uh, led by oil and gas companies that are both large corporations and, and smaller corporations. Uh, so I believe it's still too early to say what the effect of the new tax regime will be for each and every company. But overall, I believe that this new tax system in some, in some will result in companies themselves carrying more of the risks um, rather than 
you know, the society, you can say. Yeah, and I guess it, it's not f finished. We haven't debated it yet, really, right? It was just presented. So I'm sure that the yeah. parliament will also have a say in this, right? But in, but in some, I believe it's shifting some of the risks more towards the corporations. So, mm -hmm. uh, but when it comes to the report, uh, Rista and his team has taken a, a very challenging task <laughs> and delivered, a, I would say, a very good report on this. The conclusion are, of course, uh, very dependent on some key assumptions where there is high uncertainty. And when there are high uncertainty on assumptions, it means that only a small change in some of these <coughs> assumptions would give a very different conclusion. So I mm. think it's a challenging, um, you know, uh, system and model actually to, to, to say something about. But I think the report is, is, um, is very you know, robust in, in that, say, it's documented what it's done. But again, if you change some of the assumptions, it it will change the conclusions. Mm. Remy, uh, efficiency gains is obviously a key word in, in the energy transition. And re according to DNV and your report, what, what role will efficiency gains play in, in, our, in, the, in the energy transition we need to go through? Well, it's uh, also the part of the silver lining or, or the, the good things that we have uh, highlighted here uh, is that uh, energy efficiency is going to accelerate uh, significantly. It will accelerate and, and move faster than the GDP growth. And that means that we will actually have energy, energy demand flattening uh, since, since efficiency is moving faster than GDP growth. So, and that's the good thing. And if we look at Europe, um, and we have seen this, happening in, in developed countries for a while. If you look at Europe in 2019, uh, we used 133 gigajoules of energy per person. And by 2050, that will have fallen to 95 gigajoules per person. It's not because people will be uh, doing less. Uh, in fact, the lifestyles will be much more automated and connected, but we will just use less energy to do so. And that is thanks to efficiencies, both on the production side to avoid uh, heat losses in, in fossil-fired power generation, and also thanks to electrification of end uses. And we have seen this is in Norway on, on road transport, and we are also seeing it in heating and also in cooling. So this means that we will have uh, you know, significant uh, efficiency gains. And some practical things, we look at the light bulbs. Um, they, they are much more efficient. Uh, LED light bulbs are much more efficient. 95% uh, of the energy that goes into a traditional light bulb is actually converted into heat, not light, and only 5% into light. For LED bulbs, a total of 80% of the energy that uh, goes into the, the bulb goes to light. If you look at cars, uh, electrical uh, cars are, are three times at least more efficient than combustion uh, engine, internal combustion engine cars. And also we see heat pumps now that are used for heating, both when it comes to manufacturing, but also in, in buildings. And, um, and the in, by 2050, 42% of uh, space heat will come from, uh, from heat pumps and only consuming 15% of energy. So 42% of the space, but only consuming 15% of the energy. And I think this is where we see, you know, the energy efficiency gains coming. So I think it's, mm -hmm. uh, it's a hero. It's a, it's a hidden hero in the energy <laughs> transition. And, and I think this is really something 
uh, we need to to play. Oh. So the so the heat uh, heat pumps are the the heroes of uh, of our time. <laughs> uh, I, I guess it it comes. I mean, when we look at the large number, the big picture, we we know that around forty percent of all emissions are related to buildings, right? Even to construction or the heating. So, I mean, it makes sense, but I think it, it hasn't gotten that much attention as uh, airplanes or energy, right? Um, so, so it's a good point. Perhaps there should be a quote from the podcast this time that the heat pumps are the heroes. Yeah, well, <laughs> there will be heat pumps in, in different ways than what we are used to. And this will move from, you know, heating homes to also be used in industry. And, uh, and uh, but the challenging part with it, because there is also a challenge, is that it's difficult to invest in because the gains, efficiency gains, tend to be shared across, you know, uh, a, a large value chain. And the party benefiting is of not paying the bills. So, so that's here, I think, government mandates uh, and regulations and a lot more cooperation in the industries on, on standardization. I think that's important mm -hmm. to kind of get the effect from uh, energy efficiency. Hmm. We are talking about we are talking about gains and opportunities, uh, Remy. Um, in the ETO for 2021, you referred to the pandemic as sort of being a lost opportunity. What do you mean by that? Well, our first observation is that COVID recovery spending has by and large been a lost opportunity uh, because uh, it has not been so much used for uh, resetting the economic activity into a green trajectory. Uh, it's, according to our calculations, almost $20 trillion has been used to stimulate the economic recovery uh, over the past 20 months, but it's mainly been directed towards building back the existing economy and the industrial engine. So building back, but not necessarily building back better. There are exceptions, notably in the EU, but on the worldwide basis, the impact of COVID-19 spending on the pace of the transition is, is marginal. But during last year, the 2020, emissions did result in emissions, um, emissions reductions, the pandemic, and, um, and uh, we now see that the activity is picking up again. And it will probably continue to increase over the next two, three years before it then will um, start to decline again. Mm -hmm. But uh, to actually meet the Paris Agreement, we had to have the same savings in emissions uh, or reduction in emissions we had last year. We need to have that for each year, the next 30 years. So that's kind of, it's also sizing mm -hmm. the, the challenge here. But I think it is also a sort of a combined challenge, right? So we talked about uh, electrification, but what about um, the so-called hard to abate sectors? Uh, I mean, like cement, steel. Um, we know from Denmark that the government has entered into partnership with these sectors, especially called it climate partnership, in order to try to sort of help them into the new. But what are the challenges and what are the opportunities? Because this is something you are pointing specifically to in your report, right? Yeah, and, and there will be progress made in these sectors as well, but um, not sufficient in terms of, you know, reaching the Paris uh, ambitions. Uh, we believe maritime uh, is likely to achieve its uh, decarbonization goal that has been put forward by IMO. Um, the shipping fleet will replace almost 42% uh, of uh, 
its present oil use and it will replace it with low and zero carbon fuels and uh, so, such like uh, ammonia hydrogen uh, e-methanol is is a very promising uh, future fuel and other electro-based fuels so you can say this is indirect electrification because you use electricity to produce these fuels that can be used for these hard base sectors but they have to come from renewable sources and that's why we call them typically e-fuels but it also comes from better utilization and efficiencies. So we see that for aviation, uh, it will grow in size. The aviation industry, air miles, will increase by two and a half times by 2050. But in the same period, we'll also see changes. 45% of aviation fuels will be sustainable. And two thirds will be biofuels. And the rest will be e-fuels as, with hydrogen as a, as a basis. In uh, manufacturing, emissions will half over the forecast period due to less coal and more electricity. But high heat processes where electricity can't be applied, um, uh, we, we see that there is a significant remaining uh, emissions component. So yes. the overall is that we will use much more hydrogen as, as a basis, uh, as a component into what we call e-fuels. Uh, what about the carbon capture and, and uh, storage? Yeah, well, uh, this will also be um, or have to be part of the, the climate solution. But we don't see it have a very big and meaningful impact until, you know, 2040s. It doesn't mean that we will not have projects, but to really have an impact and, and, and starting to scale massively, we, we see um, another 15, 20 years. Uh, it will be used for you know, capturing uh, CO2 from cement production, not only from uh, combustion processes, but we also need it from combustion processes. Uh, it uh, will probably mean more to the system uh, in 2040s and the 2050s than in the next 20 years. But that doesn't mean we should not invest in it now. It, it takes, as I mentioned earlier on, it takes 20 years from you give a technology an early uh, you push uh, like we have seen for, for solar and, and wind. So we expect blue hydrogen, which is using gas and steam methane reforming, and then to capture and store that CO2. And that blue hydrogen that comes out of that will be important component to, to decarbonize what we have called the, the hardware-based sectors like shipping, aviation, mm -hmm. manufacturing, and, and, and so on. Yeah, the energy energy transition outlook. I mean, is a very impressive piece of work. But if I, if I'm not mistaken, you you actually also publish two supplementing reports connected to the ETO. Could you also say a few words about these uh, as well? Certainly, um, COP26. Uh, of course, this report is now out. It uh, pr presents uh, a scenario or a pathway. It's not a scenario; a most likely pathway forward. And then we will issue and are now working on a report where we call pathway to net zero emissions because the forecast, the most likely way ahead is 50% fossil fuel also in 2050. But how can we then get to net zero emissions by that time? And um, and it covers, it will cover all the hard abate sectors and, uh, and go more into detail there. Also, we will, uh, an important part of making the transition happen is how to finance this transition because it's going to cost at least in the in the short run and then we will have a report that we call financing the transition so 
it is uh, these combinations of report I think will give uh, a better view also on the opportunities in going from what we believe is the most likely forecast to actually get to net zero. Yeah, and, and you also mentioned earlier that I mean that there are regional uh, differences, right? Um, how do you see that? Uh, do, do, we, do you see the changes in that? I mean, like we we all think that Europe is ahead. I guess, um, but what is your um, analysis now? Are there movements between regions, or or how does it really look? Yeah, As, yeah, it's a it's a good point, and uh, of course, uh, all the numbers I talked about earlier is kind of global averages, and averages are you know a sum of a lot of differences, and we have looked at ten world regions uh, to kind of arrive at this global. So each region is is quite carefully and and detailed uh, analyzed. And uh, many regions will have more than 50% share of fossil fuels in 2050. So when I say 50, that's on average. More, many regions will have more than 50%. This includes uh, North East uh, Eurasia, including Russia, uh, the Middle East, North Africa, and India. In Europe, fossil energy share in primary energy consumption will fall more than uh, half to 33% by 2050. So, so Europe will have less than 50, which is the global average. Greater China uh, also will have a rapid decarbonization with the energy, or sorry, carbon intensity declining by 66%. Uh, and uh, for China, around 55% of the final energy demand will be supplied by electricity. So 55% is compared to the global average of 40%. So China will have a lot more electricity and they will also have a carbon intensity that has been reduced around 60%. So, so, so there are big differences. So what you're saying is that China will be leading on the transition? China is starting from a very high level. We have to remember that. So in terms of reduction, they will have very high numbers. I mean on two important components, carbon intensity and electricity. Challenging, of course, and, and, and this huge uh, transition that we all have to go through challenges the individual businesses uh, as well. And I, I suppose for a company like DNV, it is probably more important than for most to um, live as you preach, so to speak. Uh, what do you do in DNV in order to make sure that you also comply into the 1.5 degree uh, goal? Mm. Well, first, I would like to say that we are part of the UN Global Compact Climate Ambition Accelerator this autumn to validate our sustainability goals as science-based targets, and that will keep us within the one and a half degree Celsius. So, so that's a starting point. What we have set as goals right now is that we shall reduce our carbon footprint by 50% and uh, switching to 100% renewable electricity for our operations by 2025. So... 100% of uh, our operations, meaning buildings, uh, labs, etc., should have 100% electricity. And we would like to use our, reduce our carbon footprint by 50% within the next five years. Uh, and, um, and we want to offset our carbon footprint. And we also want to go beyond the, the, the 100% uh, electricity. And we would like to be carbon net positive. So that's our own operation. But... Bear in mind that we are a service company, so these are buildings, it's laboratories, we don't produce products, and it's travel. 
So it's the travel that will be the most challenging part for us to, to offset. And that's why we are looking for ways to become carbon net positive. The biggest impact from what we do is, is actually not our own operations, but it's the services we provide to our customers. And we have numerous examples of, of where uh, we can show this. And we are now trying to, to make a more scientific calculation of, of our contribution to our services. But it's through qualification of, of new technologies, and ensuring that they have uh, robust management systems uh, to support their decisions, and also that they're channeling, uh, channeling investments into renewable energy sources. Uh, so there are numerous examples of, uh, of where we have assisted clients to, to become uh, more efficient in the way they, they operate in terms of emissions, but also on other sustainable development goals related to, to sustainability. Yeah, and, and like you said, the Climate Ambition Accelerator, the UN Global Compact, is of course also one one way to set science to, to get help setting science based targets. That we we are very happy that you have joined in, and anybody else that would like to to join in can of course look it up. Um, but perhaps let me perhaps you have an example. If there are any examples with companies that you would like to share more concrete, yeah. if you can, uh, on the energy transition, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah, a short, a short, uh, short comment on that before we have to start getting uh, the time is running quick here. So. Yeah. Now let me start with the the green shipping program, uh, which was initiated some six years ago, uh, where there are eighty companies uh, now working together to uh, both in maritime industry but also related industries to uh, how to accelerate uh, new technologies such as. Uh, battery-powered ferries, uh, and we now see the good effect of that, that Norway leads the way, and approximately 23% of the ferries operating along uh, our coast run primarily on electricity. So, of course, here now is to take that learning and how we can scale this into deep-sea shipping. Another example is that we assisted a company in Singapore. We, assisted, we were a technical advisor to the company, for uh, a floating solar uh, panel on, on the Tenge Reservoir. And uh, that eliminates uh, 28,000 tons of carbon dioxide per year. Uh, and that is equivalent to, to 6,000 cars you know, off the road. Uh, in San Marino, we are working on something we call the low carbon ecosystem. It aims to implement what we call a circular economy uh, by incentivizing uh, sustainable behavior from citizens. Uh, this is a blockchain-based platform, uh, and it will then encourage environmentally friendly behavior and practices such as water saving, uh, waste disposal, and, and so on. And uh, th these practices then will be rewarded through what they call a utility token, and uh, that can be used to uh, access services offered uh, through the Republic, such as food and insurances and other financial services. So this is uh, two examples where we are working uh, on this. I also would like to say ocean cleanup. We are working where we have released our first traceability standard for reclaimed plastic from the ocean. And the standard provides the best practice to verify the authenticity of abandoned ocean and river plastic and build consumer trust in, in new products made from this plastic. So I think this is important um, uh, to, to mention, one on plastic and one this incentivizing uh, 
um, citizens to become uh, aware of their footprint. And the other one related to technology uh, and uh, an industry that we are very close to, and not least solar, um, floating solar uh, platform in, in, in Singapore. This is very interesting and, and encouraging, I, I must, must say, Remy. Now, before we round off, I would like to ask if you perhaps have some concrete advice. Uh, as we know, the COP26 takes place in November. And uh, if DNV were to give some concrete advice to the world leaders when they meet, what would that advice be? Mm. Well, electrification is going to transform some demand sectors and we have to continue that journey and the world has been pretty, doing pretty good on, the, on that journey so far, both in terms of making, you know, end use more elect electrified and also to make that electricity greener. But it's really the indirect electrification, the production of hydrogen to decarbonize the heart of bed sectors that we really have to accelerate now. And um, I like to think that a decarbonized energy system will operate in the ratio 70-20-10. Uh, let me explain. 70% will be through direct electrification, like we have now seen uh, for road transport. Then we have the 20% indirect electrification that will come from hydrogen and hydrogen-related products, and then 10% bioenergy. So that's the 70-20-10. Uh, so we need to work on, on all of these factors, but I think it's the 20%, uh, you know, the indirect electrification that goes to the heart of bed sectors. That is really what we uh, have to push for now. And we know it will take time and uh, we need to start now if we are, want to see an impact during the next 20 to 30 years. And we have heard today that um, the analysis of DNV is showing us 2.3 degrees um, by the turn of the century, um, a breach of the Paris Agreement. Um, we have also heard that electrification alone is not enough. And we have also heard that there is um, we need the same amount of reduction in emissions from now until uh, every year until 2050, like we saw last year. Um, so... Obviously, the, the picture is not as positive and rosy as we would like it to be, but we, we also had some positive hints of opportunities in electrification and hydrogen um, uh, above all. Um, I think that we, we, we sort of end this um, episode today with, uh, you know, a sense of urgency, but also uh, some uh, silver linings and optimism at the end of the episodes. And... Um, and I would like to thank you very much for coming, Rem Eriksson, the, the CEO of DNV. Uh, and with this, uh, you have listened to an episode of Future of Business, Framtidens Næringsliv, by Abelia and UN Global Compact Norway. Uh, more episodes can be found on framtidensnæringsliv.no and, of course, in Spotify or other places you are usually listening to your podcasts. I guess that's um, leaving us with uh, the last of this uh, and any other suggestions you would have to us uh, listeners, you can leave them on Instagram or Facebook, of course. And uh, my name is Kim Gabrieli. I'm the CEO of UN Global Compact Norway. And I'm Eustein Sørede, CEO of Abelia. Thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.